0: Thanks so much, Michelle. It's, um, it's great to have uh, the word so beautifully read to us. Great to have it before you. I'd love you to keep it open if you've got it there. I'm going to pray for us and ask that God would help us to make the most of this time and that we might understand what true bread is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for this opportunity in our week to turn our hearts and our minds to you. We thank you for this word read to us, Father. May your Holy Spirit take it challenge and change us so that we might be like your son, Jesus, on whom we feed. We ask it in his name. Amen. Well, I want to ask you, uh, maybe it's not appropriate for a Sunday morning, but, but maybe it is. Uh, what are you craving? Do you have a food craving? Of course, it'd be good for me to excite that in you just before I start speaking, so you can long for morning tea. That's probably... Really smart. I hadn't realized that until I was standing up saying it to you, but uh, does anyone have a food craving? I, uh, I put it on my Facebook page last night and asked people, hey, what food are you craving? And this was some of the suggestions, uh, the cheesy bacon balls, um, the dairy milk chocolate, uh, the hamburger, what kind of hamburger was it? Brent, is he here? Quarter pounder chicken sauce and chips. Oh, great, okay, good. Well, that's, uh, that's Brent's in particular. Um, Uh, The dare iced coffee. Uh, Do do you have a craving? Do you have a hankering for something in particular? I I think all of us will have some sort of hankering for some sort of food at some point. We know particularly that pregnant women are famous for this, aren't they? For for just bizarre, strange things that they really get fixated on. And then maybe after, don't like at all. But I'm not really talking about those sort of cravings. I actually want to say, well, no, no, what are you really craving? What are the things in our life that we have a hunger for that is not satisfied? What are we hungering for that we haven't found satisfaction from in the world around us? Is it respect? Is it intimacy? Is it meaningful work? Is it love? Acceptance? What is it inside us that we're hungering for that's our unfulfilled thing? Maybe what we're hungering for is to forgive someone, to let something go. I want us to think about our cravings today, and uh, I was trying to work out whether I could group them. I think most of our cravings will fall into one of four categories. The, the category of feed me uh, is really, I've got something immediate that I'd like you to do for me, God. And, and maybe if we're in kind of shopping list prayer mode, uh, these are the things at the top of the list. Um, dear God, today, um, I'd like my kids to be excellent and I'd like to find a car park, you know? do you, you know that sort of, they're the immediate things, right? Um, please help my boss to be in a good mood when I walk in. Uh, help all the kids in my class to be sick today, or whatever it is uh, that you're... Um, that you're praying. I, I think there's there's stuff in the category of feed me. It's an immediate need, and I'd like it right now, God. I think there's another category which I've called free me. I'm bound in something that I just can't get free of. I can't shake it. I want it to not be a part of my life anymore. And what I want, Lord, is for you to set me free from it. And funnily enough, these things often will be a quieter, reflective prayer. Maybe in the midst of your struggle, you'll say, Lord, free me. I just want to be free of this. There's another category, which is assure me, comfort me. I'm not looking for a thing. I want a knowledge, and I want to know that you will comfort me, that you'll take care of me, Lord. Assure me that you are there and that you are good and then fourthly, I think for some of us, uh, we're, we're wired up in a particular way so that when we look at the world, we want it to make sense. And the thing maybe that's bugging us like crazy at the moment is why? Why did that happen? Why has that been what happened after this? We want to make sense of the world and we want to get some meaning out of it. And so our cry to God is, God makes sense to me. Make sense to me. What I want to do uh, through our, our time together this morning is I want to look at these four things and I want to see how what happens in chapter 6 of John speaks to these hungers in the human heart. So let's start. Let's start with Feed Me, the immediate things. The story is the start of chapter 6, if you, if you go back towards the start of the chapter, the start of chapter 6 happens, uh, we're told, up and around Capernaum. Uh, in Lake Galilee, or, or it's also called Lake Tiberias uh, in, this, in this passage here. So Capernaum's up the top of the lake, uh, there like that. We have a thing called the feeding of 5,000, which is probably one of the most famous stories in the whole Bible, and it precedes the reading that Michelle brought to us. It's possible that the feeding happened on this side over here, although if you really want to have a stout a with some theological people, you can duke it out on pretty much any point around the lake. Everyone's got an opinion. My reflection is that's about the right place. Happy to have the chat with you later if you you want to talk to me about it. But that's roughly where we are in terms of the geography. Now, what we come to today is, I think, uh, the most famous lunch for one in the history of the world. So uh, Jesus has been teaching, and he goes away, and then in this faraway place, he looks up and he sees a crowd of 5,000 people coming. And uh, he says to his disciples, "Hey, kids! Actually, it's Philip. Hey, Philip, where are we going to get enough uh, bread to uh, to feed this mob?" I reckon Philip just went, "What are you talking about? First of all, this is not my responsibility. I'm going to pass it on to Peter. All right, just so we're clear. Secondly, secondly, I don't even know why we're assuming responsibility for this crowd. Let them starve." We were trying to get away from everyone. We're in the wilderness here. We're on retreat. And this crowd is gate crashing our, our spiritual retreat. I don't want to give them anything. I'd prefer them to be hungry, so they'll nick off. Anyway, it doesn't unfold exactly like that, but it's, we're, we're roughly in the ballpark. So he, 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 uh, it says that Jesus actually had in mind what he was going to do. Have a look with me at verses five to six. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him he said to Philip where shall we buy bread for these people to eat he asked this only to test him for he already had in mind what he was going to do isn't that uh, sneaky of Jesus Jesus couldn't you have just spared me a little bit of embarrassment for all eternity in the scriptures like if you're going to solve this just cut me out at any rate uh, Philip answered him it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one here to have a bite. Fortunately, there's some other smart-thinking disciples around. Verse 8, another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a small boy with five small barley loaves and two two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? So this is the famous lunchbox, right? I brought one with me. Here we go. This is one we prepared earlier. Uh, So it's got some fish in it, and it's got some bread. Now, uh, I don't know how big or small the bread and the fish were. Suffice to say, it was lunchbox-sized, And if I tried to feed all of you from this right now, you might have a skerrick of tuna. You might have a little hair of tuna. That would be wonderful, wouldn't it? And and we could break the bread up and you might get a crumb, but nothing sustaining would happen here in this auditorium right now, would it? And there was a crowd of, we're told, 5,000 men. And Jesus says to him, hey, bud, you going to feed them? So what do we learn? What, what's the point of this bit before we get on to all that lovely stuff that we read before? The, the first thing to note is the request is impossible. We need to understand that. The request is impossible. Hey, can you can you feed them? And the answer is no. So the short answer is no, I can't feed them. And I think that was part of Jesus' test right? Will you fall back on your own resources to solve this problem? Can you solve an impossible problem? The answer, of course, is no, you can't. But then someone looks around and, and they find, well, actually, actually, we do have something to throw at this problem. We have a lunchbox. We have a lunchbox to throw at this problem. But I want you to note it is that the resources are meagre. In reality, it's better than nothing, but only by a little bit, yeah? better than nothing, but only by a fraction. The outcome, however, is one of the most famous miracles in the whole Bible. In fact, it's the only miracle that's told in all four accounts of Jesus' life. Did you know that? How cool is that? So the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell all the same miracles a lot. John only does this one from the other three Gospels. Isn't that incredible? So anyway, here it is. What happens? Well, what happens is the result of an impossible challenge with meager resources is an abundant provision. The result is abundance. And so the, the question is not, is it impossible? It was impossible. The question wasn't, are the resources enough? They, they weren't enough. I think this is awesome. I heard it in a great sermon I listened to some years ago and it never left my head. The question is not do we have enough resources, but whose resources are the, whose hand are the resources we have in? If they're in my hand, impossible. In Jesus' hand, what do they become? An abundant provision for 5,000 men plus the people we don't count, the women and the children, right? So the question is, isn't do I have enough for God to do the impossible, The question is, are they in my hands or are they in his? You see this? So can you feed 5,000 people? The answer is, no, you can't. Whose hand are the resources in, though? If they're in mine, it's a lost cause. In Jesus's, they become such an abundant provision that how many basketfuls are taken up? It says 12. 12 basketfuls are left over after everyone has a fill from my lunchbox extraordinary isn't it and again i just want you to think i said this on my life group on sunday night it's a miracle of provision couldn't jesus have gone all right there are actually twelve thousand seven hundred and fifty-two of you out there i'm going to need to multiply these five loaves into and some of you want thirds so okay and so he's got the actual number of loaves he needs and the actual number of fish exactly right It's a miracle, right? So why not just make it exactly right? What does does he do? He provides abundantly, even more than they need. Why? Because it's a blessing. Because the cup overflows. Because here is the one who can feed beyond our request, beyond our need. And I think it's hugely important, although I'm not going to preach on it now, that he says collect up the leftovers so that they not be wasted. It's a whole side sermon there about how we use resources that God gives us. But what do we learn? We see the request was impossible, the resources were meager, but the result in Jesus' hand is abundant. What a beautiful start to this. So here's what I want to show you. At New Life, we have this plan. We talk about giving the message of new life, and we talk about living new life for Jesus. And we have a plan that looks like this, that helps us think about how to live out those values. If we zoom in here on our adventurous value, have a listen to this question, which I love. What are you praying for that only God can do? What are you praying for that only God can do? See, I think too often we pray inside our resources. Yeah, we pray with our lunchbox, and we go, God, this is what I got. I'm going to try and feed 5,000 people. I'd like you to help me. And I think what we need to do is we need to go, I've got nothing. This is, this is all I've got, Lord. I'm putting this into your hands, and I'm asking you to do something with it. What are we praying for that only God can do? And I want to tell you the best story for this. Standing right here with men in the middle of winter. Who was there on this hill? Put your hand up. Tom, Paul, Russ, Alan, Tim. We stood here, didn't we, gents? In the middle of winter on this hill when it was grass. We'd marked up the outsides of this building with pegs in the ground and we wrapped toilet paper around it to mark out how big this building was gonna be. And at that point in time, we'd been told that there was no way the diocese would be able to build the building. And so we stood on the hill. It was a cold night. Anyone remember that? Yeah, it was a cold night. We stood on this hill here on the grass at night with a bunch of men, and I said, guys, this is impossible. That's what I've been told. It's not possible. And I want you to join me in praying and asking that God would do something here that we don't know. Now, it seems obvious and boring, doesn't it, now? Because here you are hearing this story in the building, right? But at that point in time, it was impossible. And we just said, God, we haven't got it. We certainly can't afford to put one up ourselves. And here we are, sitting in this building. I got a call from the archbishop a couple of weeks later, and he said, Stuart, it's your archbishop. I said, hello, Glenn. Uh, And he said, "Um, look, you've been told you don't have enough money. I want to tell you that we've found some money, and we want to build your building. Praise God. What I want you to think about today is, what are you praying for that only God can do? Don't hang on to it. Hand it over to him and ask him to do immeasurably more than all you can ask or imagine. We could stop the sermon there, couldn't we? That's pretty good. Let's keep going. Let's turn to free me, the the set me free desire in the human heart. It's really interesting. There's a note at the start of this this passage. Have a look at verse 4. It's very odd. In verse 4, it says, the Jewish Passover festival was near. It's just kind of like a random, bizarre kind of side note. It was nice. I was doing some reading through the week. And they said, when you think of Passover, what you should think of in Israel is Australia Day, or actually they said the 4th of July, but who knows what the 4th of July is, right guys? But basically the idea is, think of Passover as like a national celebration, because on Passover Day, we remember our deliverance from Egypt through the Red Sea into the promised land by Moses, and we celebrate that God is stronger than all the other gods, and that he saved us, and so it's kind of a bit of a rah-rah day. Okay, so yay Israel, yay us. Except what's happening in Israel at this point in time is that they have foreign troops occupying their land. The Romans are everywhere. And so if you have a national day when you're an occupied people, it's probably a day of antsiness. Yeah? Because you're striving to be free. That's what you're longing for. Have a look with me at verses 14 to 15. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Now, if you didn't have that background, you'd just go, what has got into this mob? They ate bread and now they want to compel Jesus to wear a crown. What's going on? Well, here's what... Moses wrote. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, we see this, the Lord said to me, so Moses is saying, the Lord said to me, what they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I'll put my words into his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. God's saying, there's going to be another Moses. Another Moses will come, and he will be referred to as the prophet. Okay, now notice this in John chapter 1. Philip found Nathanael and told him we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote about Jesus of Nazareth the son of Joseph can you see that so what's happening is we've gone out into a desert place there's been an abundant provision of bread and everyone's going do you know what I reckon this is Moses part two or version 2.0 or something like that this is Moses the second Moses and he's here with us and it's near our national day saddle the horses do you get that do you get a feeling so here's, here's some here's some observations on that first of all they're thinking that Jesus might be a political winner for them right come and champion our political process lead us I think they have in mind nationalism, not godliness. Do you see the difference here? This is actually very instructive. I would speculate for our American friends. Nationalism and godliness aren't the same thing. So God's plan for the nation is different from God's plan for the nations. Yeah? And I think these people go, hey, we just want to be back on top of the world again. Let's come and um, do some things to the Romans. So I think they have in mind nationalism, not godliness. And as a result, Jesus withdraws. He goes, I can't be a party to this. You cannot come and make me your political leader. I'm not here to get swordsmen and spears and a political revolution. That's not what I'm doing. I need to take some time out and teach you guys slowly what a Messiah is. I haven't come to spark a political revolution in Israel. I'm come to do something totally different. I am going to set you free, but it won't be with politics and it won't be with the sword. It'll be through my death on the cross. But right now, you guys aren't going to understand that. So what I'm doing, I'm out of here. I think we want to ask, as, as we think about, hey, Jesus, I want you, I want you right now. I want you to come right now and solve this for me. I think we want to ask ourselves, do we want Jesus to arbitrate our squabbles or to bring his kingdom. And what I mean by that is, are we praying, are we praying, God, stop my, uh, whatever it is, uh, so I've got a dispute with my boss at work, God, stop my terrible boss, because that's your biggest priority right now. I just need you to stop my terrible boss. There's no problems with asking God to stop your terrible boss. It just isn't, perhaps, the highest priority on God's heart and it may mean that we're not looking out for his priority. So maybe we could say, actually, God, why don't you have mercy on the heart of my hard hearted boss? Soften his heart that he might hear the good news. In the meantime, if you can tone down the rhetoric I get from him, that would be great. But, it, but it's a matter of priorities. Are we looking to stop a squabble or are we looking to pray that God will bring his kingdom? What about the desire for assurance? What about the desire for assurance? Um, I got some new milk the other day. Isn't that good? I'm sure you're very excited about this. I've actually never had this milk before, uh, but it looked white, so that's helpful, isn't it? The problem is when you get milk, the fact that it looks white on the outside isn't the most important thing, is it? What's the most important thing when you get milk? Correct? Correct? Okay, that is the most important thing. Not whether it looks white on the outside, because that, that little container can hold a lot, whole lot of stinky mess, can't it? So the most important thing, I'm in luck, 4th of March 2017, we're all good. But, but here's the thing, this is food that spoils, yeah? It goes off. It's not the jar of Vegemite that you've had since 1980, Yeah? I don't know what Vegemite's made out of. I know vitamin B, yeah, but I pass it. I've got no idea, right? It just stays black. Perfect. No problems. But there is food. Maybe the black and white thing, maybe that's what's going on. Anyway, uh, the milk, milk will spoil. And Jesus tells us something about spoiling food. Have a look with me at verses 26 to 29 of uh, of chapter 6 here. Uh, Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you're looking for me. So the crowd chased Jesus. The next day, the crowd chased Jesus. They figured out where he'd gone, and they went, we've got to be with that guy over there. So they they walked a whole whole way to get to him. Uh, Very truly, I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Verse 27, do not work for food that spoils but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. They asked him, what must we do to do the work God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. See, what the people want is they go, look, uh, it'd be really helpful. We, We had bread yesterday, and just so we're clear, no one had to grind it. We see when I want bread, what do I do? I just go down to the largest Woolies in the Southern Hemisphere. That's the advertising on the board: largest Woolies in the Southern Hemisphere. And I go, I would like some bread. And the the problem I have with choosing bread is that I have to choose which bread it is, right? Do I want the low fibre, high grain, brown, white? I don't know, whatever it is, with extra grains or anyway, you get the you get the thing. It's it's a smorgasbord. The the onerous thing is how much time I'm going to spend choosing one there bread was a staple you had to grind it you had to knead it you had to bake it and it didn't keep so you did it again and again and again and again and again and what happened yesterday was I had a feed with five thousand of my ten and a half twelve and a half thousand of my closest friends and I didn't do any work for it so today I'm going to the Jesus supermarket more bread sir And Jesus is saying to them, hey, you guys came. You came to eat. You didn't come to get the sign of who I am. They asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. What they're basically saying is, hey, look, you did something pretty cool yesterday, But what we're thinking is you might be Moses. So can you do Moses for us? I think he provided dead bread bread daily, six days a week, for 40 years. So get going. We're looking for day two. Did you get it? So that's the expectation. What sign? They're not looking for a sign which is, and then an asteroid fell from the sky. They're going, we want to see more bread. Give us more bread that we didn't work for. Please, right now. What do they need to know? Jesus actually tells them, it wasn't Moses who provided food for you, just so we're clear. It was God. God gave you the food. Secondly, the one who is here today is greater than Moses. Did you catch the sign? Oh, you missed that. Thirdly, he says, I want to give you life, not give you something that gets moldy. I want to give you life not something that gets moldy. Don't look for the bread. Look for the one who is even greater than Moses, who offers you eternal life. So what do we learn about this living bread? I'm going to invite Stuart up to help me uh, tell you just some things that we learn about this living bread. Thanks, Stuart. So from this passage, we see six things about salvation. Something extraordinary is stitched into this passage. Have a listen. So the first is, salvation is by grace. Have a listen to what it says here in verse 27.
1: Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval.
0: We're saved by grace because it's food that the Son will give you, not that you'll earn.
1: Secondly, we'll see that it's by faith. In verse 29, it says this Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So, what's the work you've got to do? Believe. We're saved by faith. Thirdly, it's for the elect,
0: those who are chosen. Have
1: a listen to this in verse 37. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away.
0: God chooses them, and God calls
1: them. It's for the elect fourthly we see that it's from the nations in verse 40 for my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life and i will raise them up at the last day you guys will miss this but it says everyone
0: it doesn't say all faithful israelites guess who that includes that's us how wonderful salvation is for the nations fifthly we'll see it's by
1: god's calling have a listen to these verses No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them and I will raise them up on the last day. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. God calls, he enables,
0: he draws. Salvation is by the calling of God. And then thirdly, uh, sorry, thirdly, sixthly, God is the one who saves, and he saves in Trinity. You ready for this? So have a listen. We're going to hear salvation is from the Father, from the Son, and from the Holy Spirit.
1: Do not work for the food that spoils, for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Thanks so much, Stuart. Father, Son,
0: Holy Spirit. It's stitched here in a passage that we think is about feeding the 5,000. We see salvation is by our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How brilliant is that? Now, I just want to quickly note here something about blood and flesh. Did you hear about blood and flesh? Is it confusing? Okay, cool. I'm going to see if I can solve this for you. We'll see how we go. In the Old Testament, in Leviticus 17, we see God speaking to his people. He says, I will set my face against any Israelite or any foreigner residing among them who eats blood, and I will cut them off from the people. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I've given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It's the blood that makes atonement for one's life. So how do I know that some animal has died in my place? The blood is spilled out. The life comes out of the animal. Here's Jesus saying, eat my flesh and drink my blood. There is no Jew, apart from the fact that it's cannibalism to start with, right? There's no Jew who would have thought about eating blood and not gone. It's a horrible thought to them because there's death in the blood spilt on the ground. What Jesus is saying, he's tipping it upside down. He's saying, I'm full of life. If you have my blood in you, you will live forever. Have a look at these parallel passages. This is, I think, where it's the clearest. In verses 53 and 54, it says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise them up at the last day. And we kind of go, Jesus, have mercy. What are you saying? Have a look at this verse. In verse 40, it says this everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life and I'll raise them up at the last day. Here's what I want to say to you. Eats my flesh is looking to the son. Drinks my blood is believing in him. Can you see this? Has eternal life, shall have eternal life and I'll raise them up at the last day. It's exactly parallel. So when you're worried about eating Jesus' flesh and drinking his blood, here's what he's saying. Look to me and believe in me. Look to me and believe in me. All of me, the physical me, know that I came in the flesh to save you. And if you believe that, guess what? You'll be saved. How awesome is that? So eat and drink. to eat and drink Jesus is to see and believe Jesus. Does that clear it up for you? Great. Fourthly, and I'm going to finish with this, uh, make sense to me, God, I think uh, what what happens is Jesus speaks these words, and just like the moment that just happened in church here, have a look what happens in verse 60. Uh, In verse 60, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching, Who who can accept it? So a whole bunch of people leave Jesus. Often we think to ourselves, it would be really great having Jesus around. I'd follow him without any doubts if he was here. And I want to tell you today, the people who stood in the presence of Jesus, who ate supernatural bread that he multiplied, walked away because they went, this is too hard. I think for those of us whose God is our stomach, We can't wait long enough for Jesus to supply for us. So he says, I want to give you the bread that lasts forever. I want to give you eternal life. And we go, Jesus, I've got a problem right now. I need satisfaction right now. That's too long for me. You can't help me. Some of us think politics is the answer to all the world's problems. And so we're like, well, Jesus, I need you to be my king my way right now. And if you're not going to do that, I've got no interest in you. You you come and help my political revolution. I'm... You come and help my political revolution or I'm not interested. Jesus says, actually, I'm kind of about building my kingdom for the whole world. And so some people find that too hard. Some people are into religion and so they go, actually, I want it to be comfortable. Our ancestors did this. And Jesus says, actually, I'm standing right in the midst of you. I'm teaching hard things, but I'm here. If you want old school comfort, I'm not offering it. What I'm offering you is a real relationship right now. Some of us might have our minds being our God and we'll say, God, you can be no bigger than my brain. If I can't think how you can do that, you can't be my God. And so if we're, our God is our, our stomach, our politics, our religion or our mind, we'll walk away from Jesus at this point and say, your offering to me is not good enough. I'm walking away. And I want to ask this question, which we have up here at the commit one. It says this, What makes committing to Jesus easy or difficult for you today? For some of you, it'll be a decision you made ages ago. For some of you sitting here right now, you'll be thinking, I couldn't become a Christian today because I'd have to give up this. I want you to think whether Jesus' offer is worth it. I'm suggesting to you there's no supermarket for eternal life. So here's where we land Here's where we land today. We have a choice. Jesus says to his disciples in, uh, in verses 66 to 69, he says this, from this time on, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Do you want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? These are beautiful words. You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Where else shall we go? You alone have words of eternal life. So, what I want to offer you this morning, church, is this. You can continue craving unfulfilling junk, or you can come to Jesus and find eternal satisfaction for your souls. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your incredible provision for these people in the wilderness. We thank you that it wasn't about a magic show, it wasn't about Moses. was about pointing to your son as the Messiah, the one who would come, spill his blood, that we might find life in his name. Father, we thank you that Jesus is the bread of life, and I pray that we would accept no substitutes, that we wouldn't binge out on the treats of this world and get fat and bloated, but Father, we'd find true satisfaction, lasting and eternal life, a true hope true comfort, true assurance, true food, true freedom in your Son. And we ask it in his name. Amen.